This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 61 of the History Files for the fourth week of July, 2016. We're always thinking about how to improve what we do here, so after some deliberation, we decided to cut the uh, history headlines segment of the show. If any real breaking news occurs, or if we want to note some particularly significant anniversary, we'll add it in that capacity. But as a regular segment, we just didn't really feel that it was that big a value add. Uh, at any rate, let's take a look at the media. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. First up on YouTube, we've got, um, as we often do, a Lindy Beige episode. This week, he dragged out of his Cool Stuff collection... A shirt of really cool mogul plated mail armor that he picked up somewhere. It's from 1630-something. 1688 is when it, yeah, 1688. They know that it was at least that old. Right, right. Because it's marked on it that it was captured then. Yeah, and he take he takes some time with it and and gets a good look at it. And it's actually a pretty decent piece, a nicely representative. And he's all chuffed about it and and uh, chats it up. So it's a it's a nice example of a type of armor that was all over the East back in the day. It's also interesting to note that uh, mail was used in the East far longer than in the West. Uh, in the West, it was pretty much out of date by the late 16th century, is used somewhat in the New World, certainly in the Mexican-Indian frontier in the six, into the 1630s, but it was used well into the 18th century in India and Persia and uh, in the Middle East. Next up for television stuff, I took a look at episode one of Ripper Street the other night. Right now it's streaming on Netflix and probably will be for the foreseeable future. They have three seasons or series up right now. I know there's a bunch more available out there. It stars Matthew McFadden, who you might remember from the 2005 film version of Pride and Prejudice as Mr. Darcy. It's really, really good. They do a really nice job of establishing of establishing the kind of seedy underbelly of London in the 1880s. The costuming's great. The hair's great. The material culture is good. Of course, it's not going to be perfect, but it, this is the best of the best kind of thing that that British television exports to us. They do a really, really nice job of it. The story's good. It's a nice murder mystery. I give it two thumbs up, and I recommend it. I, I'll probably watch more of it. It's a little dark and grim. Um, these are people with problems. Nobody's perfect, but there are some really interesting characters, and our lead is very likable. And if you give me at least one friendly, likable character in a story, I will stick with it. So, so that's nice. I enjoyed that a lot. And books, 
I just finished Cavalier of the Apocalypse by Suzanne Allen, published in 2014. This is set in 1786. It's a historical murder mystery and a prequel to Allen's previously previously published Aristide Ravel mysteries, which are set in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Now, I'm no expert on French history, but I'm really picky about historical novels, and this one grabbed me from the first couple of pages. It just transported me. It's, she has very detailed attention to the setting, and it's a good mystery, murder mystery to boot. It's available for a short time for free if you're catching this podcast fresh on an Amazon digital download. It's just really well done. She makes interesting use of an actual historical scandal. This would be the scandal of the diamond necklace. And if you're familiar with uh, uh, the film The Affair of the Necklace in 2001, starring Hillary, uh, which was released in 2001, starring Hillary Swank and other folks, then you're familiar with this real-life historical scandal of the diamond necklace. I, I recommend that film, too. Uh, it also stars Jolie Richardson as Marie Antoinette and Jonathan Price as Cardinal de Rohan. And it's for rent or purchase on Amazon. It's not Prime, but it's there at the moment. But you know what? I bet your local library has a copy, too. So check out The Affair of the Diamond Necklace for a film and for a book, The Cavalier of the Apocalypse by Suzanne Allen. I got that as a, as a digital download. Really, really enjoyed it. And it looks like Gordon has added a show note in here that I didn't know about. <laughs> so let's let him talk about that. Yeah, Affair of the, Affair of the Necklace is, is a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. For books, I want to add in Battles That Changed History by Fletcher Pratt. It's published in 1956. It's an excellent analysis uh, of some otherwise poorly known battles, which certainly in his explanation are shown to be quite decisive in their effect, if not in the longevity of their remembrance. I've used this chapter on Las Navas de Tolosa fairly freely in today's discussion of the topic, in fact. It's available online, by the way, and it's well worth the read. I very much enjoy his staccato writing style as well. History lives again. In today's episode, I'd like to talk about a subject which combines the history of early Spain and its conflict with the Muslim South out of the exploration of North America during the 16th century. At least it connects in my mind. The main subject is the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, which was engaged on July 16th of 1212 in what is today the Kingdom of Spain. But before I get into that, I want to mention one of the great names in the Spanish exploration of North America. For some background, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, head of the cow, was a gentleman of some standing in Spain and was an official treasurer and secretary of the colonizing attempt in Florida by Pamfilio de Narváez, who was based out of Cuba. Interestingly, Narváez had lost an eye in a conflict with Hernán Cortés on the beach at Veracruz, only a few years before, attempting to arrest Cortés for having flaunted the orders of the governor of Cuba, Diego de Velázquez. Beaten, his army joined Cortés in conquering Mexico, while Narváez was rewarded by the king with a grant to colonize La Florida, the place of flowers. The colony was established in 1527 near present-day St. Petersburg, Florida, but was um, unfortunately it was a horrific failure from the beginning. Some of the ships were sunk by storms even before they left the vicinity of Cuba. 
They met hostile native peoples who barred their way inland, despite the best or worst efforts of the Spaniards. Narvaez had taken his men to find a reputedly rich town named Apalachin. Of course, that's the root of the present name for the hill country to the north. But he found it barren of gold. Further marches to the north yielded nothing but exhaustion and the deaths of many of the men to harassing attacks by the local Indians. Finally, the attempt was made to journey around the Gulf of Mexico to Spanish territory, but only four men survived to make it all the way to Mexico. Their leader was Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, and his journey is well documented in his narrative, which was published in Spain, and in fact there's uh, republications and translations out that are available to you today. They built boats made of the hides of their horses, which they slaughtered both to eat and to use their hides for this purpose. They used iron from the horseshoes and from their stirrups and saddle parts to make nails to hold these flimsy craft together. And the colonists attempted to travel via the Gulf of Mexico, but were beset by misfortune from the outset, pretty much like all the rest of the history of that particular colony. There were tempests, strong the strong current flowing out from the mouth of the Mississippi, and even a hurricane wrecked the boats and drowned the Spaniards until just a handful were tossed up on the beach near the present city of Galveston, Texas. Some of the survivors were butchered as they lay on the beach, while the rest of, were enslaved by the local natives, probably the Carancoa. Ultimately, the four survivors, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, Andres Dorantes de Carranza, Alonso Castillo Maldonado, and a man called Estevanico the Moor. While there's no debate as to the, yeah. while there's no debate as to the ethnic background of the Spaniards, there is some concerning Estevanico. Some claim that he was a Berber from Morocco, while the mythology has it that he was a sub-Saharan African, as he's often described as being black. We'll probably never know the reality of his true ethnicity, but he was definitely of African background, whether northern or southern, though, is still open to question. Whatever it was, he had a strong influence on the survival of all four men and was given his official freedom at the end of their travail. He had further adventures of his own some years later, accompanying the, the and leading Fray Marcos de Nisa in an attempt to run down the stories they'd encountered on their way, which sadly led to his ultimate death at the hands of the Zuni Indians in the far north. The four men, mentioned before, <clears throat> gained quite a bit of fame throughout the area through their mixture of knowledge of what little there was of European medicine at the time, Catholic rites, an application of common sense, and probably a little bit of chicanery to, <laughs> to boot. Whatever it was, they gained the following of the Native Americans, who eventually followed the four men across what is now the southwest of the United States and the north of Mexico, eventually hitting the Gulf of California. Traveling down through Sonora and Sinaloa, they were met by Spanish slavers, operating illegally under the orders of one of the judges who'd been sent to replace Cortez, this one is Nuno de Guzman, and they were well prepared to capture the numerous Indians who were following Nunez, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. The astonished would-be captors were met by a blue-eyed, blonde-bearded man who demanded, in perfect Castilian, to know who they were and in whose name they were rounding up his people. Being an actual, real, petty nobleman in a world of would-be gentlemen, his arguments carried quite a bit of weight and carried the day. 
His followers were told to go home freely, and Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Baca and his three companions were led to Culiacán and thence back to Mexico City. In Mexico City, the stories these men told of their eight-year adventures sparked further rumors, and those of the so-called Seven Cities of Gold, which were another Mexico, Otro México, or a New Mexico somewhere to the north. So if you're wondering where the name of the state of New Mexico comes from, this is where it comes from. Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca returned to Spain to petition the king to allow him to return these lands, uh, to these lands to claim them for Spain and to colonize them, and to relieve them of their gold, of course. Instead, the king, after listening with rapt attention to his stories, sent Núñez to conquer and colonize Argentina instead. The kings of Spain were never really trusting of their conquistadors to be faithful stewards, and always expected that they would try to cut out a chunk of real estate for themselves, independent of the crown. By the way, I want to mention that due to Núñez's testimony, our friend Núñez de Guzmán, the judge who was um, ordering the illegal, quite illegal, roundup of Indians to be slaves, was also returned to Spain in chains. There was a reason that the crown distrusted their conquistadors. The stories which these men told of the land of what they'd heard about in the lands during their eight years traveling throughout what is now the border region of Mexico in the United States fueled speculation about these mythical seven cities of gold, which in turn led to the De Soto and Coronado expeditions of 1538-42, which traveled and surveyed pretty most of the southern tier of states in the present of the present-day United States. Okay, back to our main story, that of the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. The contestants in this battle were as follows. On one hand, we have the kings of the various tiny kingdoms which made up the Christian Spain and Portugal, which only occupied the northern and western half, or at best, of the Iberian Peninsula. Add to that various crusaders from France, Germany, England, and other parts of Europe. The claim was some 60,000 knights, each of which would, of course, be accompanied by retainers and servants. Most of the French knights, however, left before the battle was begun because, well, they didn't have much chance for much uh, loot or pickings such as that, and they got disgusted with the high attitudes of the Castilians. On the other side was the Berber Almohad Empire, which controlled not only southern Spain, but also a very large chunk of North Africa, from Senegal to Algeria, and a Muslim army recruited from the length and breadth of the Muslim world. The claim for his, this army was some 600,000, doubtless an exaggeration, but maybe not by too much. It was well established that these two armies would meet, and when they did, a decision would be made as to the fate of Iberia one way or another. The main characters were King Alfonso VII of Castile, along with his grandson Pedro II of Aragon, Sancho VII the Strong of Navarre, Alfonso II of Portugal, and perhaps most importantly, Archbishop Rodrigo of Toledo, whose fiery determination and calls for crusade made the entire campaign possible. On the other side, the Muslim Caliph Muhammad al-Nasir, known as 
Miramolin to the Spaniards who commanded to the Muslim army and who ruled the Almohades Caliphate. The background is, as always, important. In 711 AD, the first of the Saracens, flying the green banner with the crescent and star upon it, had crossed from North Africa into Visigothic Spain. The Visigoths, who were hardly more than a chaotic jumble of warring, warring chieftains lording it over the Romanized population of serfs, constituted little in the way of organized resistance to this invasion. By 732, the Saracens were coursing through France on their way to Paris. But at Tours, under the leadership of Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, steward to the house of Clovis and grandfather to Charlemagne, the Franks met with and decisively beat the Muslim invaders, turning them back for over a thousand years. The Moors retreated across the Pyrenees to establish the Caliphate of Spain. They'd not be completely ejected for another 700 years, but over the next several hundred years, Muslim rulers of Spain would control far more land than the rump kingdoms of Portugal, Castile, Leon, Navarre, and Aragon. It was discovered that somehow, miraculously, the body of St. James the Greater, an apostle of Christ, had transported itself to Compostela in northern Spain to become the focus of a pilgrim's trail, which, of course, is still very, very popular even to this day, the uh, Santiago de Compostela. Additionally, following this theme, legend has it that the visage of Santiago Matamoros, Santiago the Moor Slayer, clad in armor while riding a white horse and bearing the flag of a red cross on a white field, had appeared during the hard-fought battle with the Moors at Clavijo. Although this battle has been shown to be legendary rather than real, it was still a compilation, it was in fact a compilation of several battles fought against the Moors, and Santiago and at them became the battle cry for the Spaniards forever after. The tiny Christian kingdoms continued to fight for their survival, clawing their way back from the brink of extinction, though seldom being more than a minor irritant to the Umayyad Caliphate in Cordoba. The dynasty produced what was probably, by far and away, the most advanced culture in Europe in the day, with Christians, Jews, and Muslims living in relative peace and plenty within it. However, as great as the, um, let me rephrase that. However, as the threat from the north grew, the Omeyads went to their co-religionists in North Africa for aid, and rather than helping them to destroy the Christians to the north, instead the North Africans proceeded to conquer the Muslim Spain for themselves, uh, establishing their own Almoravides dynasty of uh, Murabitin Berbers. Get my mouth around all these things. Following the usual course, the Almoravides eventually succumbed to the pleasures of the rich lands of Spain, at least as <laughs> rich lands compared to North Africa, to be eventually replaced by the Almohades, um, another Berber empire, which this time was wise enough to keep their capital in Morocco. They were a growing crusading force to be reckoned with. The hero of our story here, Alfonso VII of Castile, should pro properly be called Alfonso the Lucky, for he was lucky indeed to have even lived long enough to gain his throne. His father had died when he was an infant, and the Lara and Castro families vied for his guardianship. And often as not, when such things happen, 
The young heirs tend to disappear before they gain their majority, but he did not. When he escaped from them in his teen years, the population rallied around him to such an extent that he was able to claim his rightful inheritance and proceed from that point on. He is also lucky to have a daughter while still fairly young, and he married her off to the King of Aragon, whose son Pedro II, Alfonso's grandson, became a favorite of the troubadours and quite the knight-errant. As the interests of Aragon were in the Mediterranean rather than the Iberian sphere, this allowed Pedro to fully back his maternal grandfather's military advance against the Moors without any political repercussions. There's some interesting stories about Pedro II, um, such as the fact that he had spent a night before a battle in a rather um, un- unusual way, to the point he could not stand at mass in the morning and had to be lifted into the saddle the next day. Uh, and sadly, he was killed in that battle as well. Add to this medieval, <laughs> I have to repeat that, um, Nancy said, uh, that reminds her of every reenactor she's ever known. <laughs> Drink all night and not be able to do your job the next day. Add to this, uh, the medieval system of kings, knights, and retainers, uh, there were the also the military orders of Spain. These, like the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller, and the Teutonic Knights, were religious orders with a military bent. They weren't totally unlike some of the other other celibate military groups in history, such as the Janissaries and the Mamluks, but these men were, however, volunteers, not slaves, and they chose to dedicate their lives to the defeat of Islam. The Knights of Santiago... Calatrava and Alcantara were powerful military orders with a focus on warfare. The main advantage in them for Alfonso was that they were uninterested in local politics and their only interest was in fighting the Moors. Alfonso VII had suffered an almost catastrophic defeat at the hands of Yaqub, the leader of the Almohades Empire, in 1195 and had grown tired who, who had grown tired of Alfonso's advances on the frontier. There are claims of upwards of 25,000 Christian dead. Um, they may not have been too far from the truth, because medieval chroniclers, while they would wildly inflate the numbers of enemy dead, very seldom inflated the numbers of their own dead. So it was a cat- catastrophic defeat for the Spaniards. It's also probably prudent here to discuss briefly what sort of warfare was practiced in Spain during this time. Far from being the standard European-style combat in which fully armored knights would run down their opponents, uh, likewise who would also be a fully armored knight, both of them mounted on large, powerful stallions and using couched lances and shields, the Spaniards of both religions used a somewhat different model. Based on the North African light cavalry, and very much like the Saracen cavalry, they were rode smaller, more nimble horses, and in fact often rode mules due to the very rough terrain. The Spaniards also, as with Arab practice, tended to prefer mares to stallions. Also, due to the lack of proper wood in North Africa, although there was really good wood in Spain for making bows, they just didn't take advantage of it, but they copied the North African uh, mode of battle, uh, and there, so there was a definite preference for the use of the javelin, which was thrown rather than using it as a lance to be couched under the arm. The favorite tactic of these jinetes, 
was to charge the enemy, hurl their javelins from a decent distance, and then race away to pull out another from the quiver on the saddle and do it again. It's kind of neat that there's some echoes of this in the Spanish conquest of the New World. For example, Bernal Díaz del Castillo, in his excellent True History of the Conquest of New Spain, uh, concerning his own adventures with Cortes in 1519-21, to makes note of the death and combat of a favorite war mare. Not his favorite, I mean it was a favorite of the whole army, uh, giving the name of her owner and her breeding and background, while at the same time dismissing the Spaniards killed with barely a footnote. Also, Milchor Díaz, who was commanding part of the Coronado expedition of 1540-42, was exploring part of present-day California, and he grew disgusted with some of the expedition's dogs that were bothering their herd of sheep. Sheep were brought along as sort of a meat on the hoof. He gave chase to these dogs, and he threw his lance at one of them. Unfortunately, he missed, and as he was mounted on a fast horse, it ran up on the metal butt of the lance, which pierced his groin. He is reported to have said, If I had a silver tube, I would live, referring to having sliced through his urethra. Uh, could have been repaired with a silver tube. He died two weeks later. The major difference between the Christians and the Moors at this point, insofar as arms and armor went, though, was that the Christians tended to have better armor, that is, male, while the Moors tended, tended to prefer padded cloth. The Christians, of course, had some padding under and sometimes over their mail, but they were definitely better armed for the most part. And likewise, the, the logistics train of the Spaniards tended to flow back up into Europe, into France, to Germany, Italy, um, the low countries, and they could purchase their equipment from far and away. The Moors, not so much. They just didn't have the, uh, quite the, the economic logistical um, setup that the Spaniards were able to tap into. The battle. By 1211, things were set up for a clash, and it seems that both sides called for a crusade to eliminate their rivals. At the call of the Archbishop of Toledo, and backed by the Pope, volunteers from across Christendom rallied to the side of Alfonso VIII. Meanwhile, volunteers from across Islam as far away as Persia, rallied to Muhammad al-Nazir, Yaqub's son and heir, and they crossed the Straits of Gibraltar, moving up through Spain to the Christian borderlands. That's the outlandish numbers we see bandied about here. They may actually be somewhere near the truth. The army, led by Alfonso VIII, included not only the military orders of Santiago, Calatrava, and Alcantara, but also forces led by Sancho the Strong of Navarre and Alfonso's grandson Pedro II of Aragon. There are also knights from Portugal, Leon, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, Italy, England, etc. Mohammed al-Nazir was forced to string his army across the borderlands, but he concentrated most of them behind the Sierra Morena, a fairly formidable range of mountains, and he guarded all of the passes with some pretty strong garrisons. The place he concentrated his forces at, however, was called Las Navas de Tolosa, the Little Plains of Tolosa. At this point, things were at an impasse. Alfonso needed to get at the Moorish army in order to keep his army together, while Al-Nazir needed to all he needed to do was to wait him out 
and allow the entropy uh, that was common to all med medieval armies to do its job. While Alfonso was trying to decide what to do, a shepherd, one Martin Alaja, came to his camp and told of a secret path that was large enough to allow his army to snake its way through the mountains and down into the valley. With much prayer and discussion, it was decided to do so, and the shepherd would mark the way with cow skulls. Make note of that. The deed was done, and the Moors were presented with a Christian army across their front that had completely bypassed their defenses. Astonishingly, though, two days passed before the battle was joined. On the morning of July 16, 1212, the preliminaries of combat were entered into. The usual challenges for personal combat rang out across the battlefield, and such were engaged in. But there was actually little holding back the enthusiasm of the military orders other than discipline. They, along with the Castilians and the Archbishop of Toledo by his side, formed Alfonso's main battle, while Sancho the Strong commanded the vanguard and Pedro II of Aragon the rearward. There wasn't much in the way of strategy or tactics in this fight. The Christians attacked headlong after the minor skirmishing was conducted. On the right and the left, the Moors were gradually driven in, backed into the rocky and wooded landscape which surrounded the battlefield. Here the heavier armor of the Christians came into play to their advantage. In the center, though, the Knights of Calatrava were almost wiped out and the Christians were driven back. Alfonso began to lose heart, and he cried, Archbishop, it is here that we ought to die. The Archbishop, however, had a better eye for war. He replied, No, sire, it is here that we should live and conquer. First, he had seen the Moorish counterstroke break on the unyielding mass of Spanish spearmen. Presaging their tercio descendants, they, unlike most medieval infantry, held solidly rather than breaking against the onslaught. Second, he had seen Sancho the Strong and his Navarrese break through from the flank and assault Mohammed al-Nazir's stockade, with Sancho himself cutting his way in. As was traditional for Oriental, and I mean that in the traditional sense of Middle East, not Far East, armies, when the leadership was defeated, the army was defeated. The claim was of 185,000 Muslims slain. Doubtless this was an exaggeration, but probably not by a great deal. The aftermath. Also as usual, with the victory, the Christian army melted away almost as quickly as the Muslim one did in defeat. It seemed as though nothing was settled. In fact, a great deal had been settled, though it wasn't to become apparent for a while. To begin with, the Muslim dynasty, which the Christian forces defeated, was not one in decline, as was often the case. This army was in full flower of its religious bellicosity, re drawing recruits from across Islam. Their fighting aristocracy was wiped out, and the Muslims in Spain and North Africa never regained the offensive spirit against the Christians in Spain afterwards. Secondly, it established Castile as the leader of the Reconquista, which would continue until the final taking of Granada in January of 1492. Finally, it wasn't just the Muslim army which was defeated. It was the Muslim system which was defeated. It needed constant victory to sustain its forward momentum and the constant flow of recruits to do it with. The European knight and retainer system, which, while inefficient by our standards, was far more efficient in bringing forward good human material and far more resilient in defeat. 
And for our conclusion, remember Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca and his adventures in the New World? His mother's family name, Cabeza de Vaca, came from that lowly shepherd, Martín Alaja, who for his efforts was ennobled with the coat of arms featuring, of course, the head of a cow. Well, I hope we didn't lose you with all those names and dates and places. We'll, uh, of course, have a few links for some things in the show notes so you can do a little reading on your own. And show notes for this episode can be found at sicon.fm slash thf61. And many of our episodes have supplemental entries over at Gordon's History Ramblings blog, which you can check out. So you can contact us with your questions or comments at historyfilesshow at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, be sure to check out some of the other podcasts over at SciCon, such as, excuse me, the Five Days a Week Geek Days or the Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Uh, we've got some new shows like How to Comic and Take Five, which is a five-minute podcast. It's nice and short. Anyway, thanks to everyone who reposts and retweets and everyone who's listening. The History Files wouldn't be possible without your support. If you'd like to help us defray some of the many costs of producing a show like this, head over to our store at Zazzle, pick up a mug or a t-shirt or a key ring or something. We'd sure appreciate it. Um, anything else, Gordon? That should pretty much do it. Um, I enjoyed researching this show. It's some, uh, This is... A, a subject near and dear to my heart. I like lecturing on it. And Alva Nunez Cabeza de Vaca is one of my favorite characters in history. So I like being able to give a little bit of background of where he came from. So that should wrap it up. I want to thank you again for joining us for this episode 61 of The History Files. And please join us again next week for another exciting adventure in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash SciCon, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.